Uh, good morning, church. Hey, peace to all of you. Good morning, those of you who are joining us also online. Uh, this is, uh, well, let me start with an apology, actually, because my kids watch this feed, and surprisingly, my parents watch this feed. So I'm stuck on both sides with the title of a message that is How to Hate Your Parents. So I just apologize right off the bat, but if you'll stay with me for a few minutes, hopefully we can redeem that title. And more importantly, we can redeem the words that Jesus spoke. You know, many people regardless of whatever else they might make of Jesus, whatever they think that he was or however they accept him in his life, will suggest that he was a great teacher. And that's always kind of struck me as odd, because if you've spent any time reading the teachings of Jesus, you'll find that there is an awful lot of things that he says that are really hard to understand and really hard to deal with. They're just I don't know, they're hard to swallow and apply in our lives. So today, as, uh, as Nathan mentioned, we're shifting our focus during our summer series, and uh, we're going to look at some of those really hard things that Jesus said. You know, summer preaching sometimes at MCBC is like a box of chocolates. You, you just never quite know what you're going to get week to week. So we've we got a tough one today. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at things that, that people normally assign to Jesus. We think Jesus said them, but he didn't really. And, uh, and sometimes our misunderstanding can get in the way of our relationship with God, our understanding of who he is. But today we're shifting gears and we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus actually did say, but they're still hard to understand. And they're pretty shocking. And they can be hard to to really get into our system. Uh, I guess in a way, now that I made the Forrest Gump joke about a box of chocolates, I have to admit that this particular saying we're going to look at today is a lot less like chocolate that just kind of melts in your mouth and a little bit more like hard candy. You just, you can't get through it in one bite. Those of you who uh, have a thing for hard candy know that the only way you can deal with it is just to you have to leave it in your mouth for a while. You have to work with it. You have to ruminate on it. And, and so it is with some of the teachings of Jesus. On the surface, they can look difficult. But if you ruminate and reflect and live with them a little bit, they have a way of getting into your system. So here's the one we're starting with today. This is from Luke 14, verse 26. If you want to open up your Bibles or your devices, Luke 14, 26, Jesus out and out says it, you must hate your father and mother. Okay, and we're going to come to the full context of the saying. But on the surface, you hear words like that, you must hate your father and mother, and, and it sounds absurd. I mean, that's terrible. What kind of teaching is that? Or maybe some of you, if you're honest, say, hey, that's no problem. I already hate my father and mother. But uh, if you say that, uh, actually, it is a real problem isn't it? There's a lot of people for whom that's exactly the case, and it's one of the great wounds of their life. And there's, there's actually things that Jesus says in other places that are meant to, to help address that woundedness. But we're going to look at the starkness of this saying. So let's read those verses together. We'll bring them back up on the screen. Luke 14, 25 through 27 says that there were large crowds who were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, listen, that's a, that sure is a piece of hard candy. What do you make of a passage like that? I mean, hopefully after, after glancing through it and, and hearing it, uh, at least you, you realize that it's probably not really about fathers and mothers, even though that's the thing that jumps out at us. There's something else that Jesus is digging at here. What it probably really is about is that churchy word, discipleship. It's about what it means to know and to follow Jesus. And, and I'm going to suggest as we work through the passage that there, there might be, there's probably more than this, but there might be at least four things that we can tease out of those hard words as we ruminate on them for a while. Four things that it suggests about what it means to know and follow Jesus. Here's the first thing. If you have this in your notes, you can follow along in your notes. For Jesus, discipleship is not an optional thing. Uh, it's not like there's a lot of Christian teaching to accept and then discipleship gets added on in the end. For Jesus, discipleship is not optional. We learn this from the context. Who is Jesus speaking to at this point? Well, have a look at the opening, the opening context in the verse. It says that there were large crowds traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said this. He turned to the crowds from who? Probably from that little inner circle that he liked to spend his time with, his disciples and the women who followed him. These were the people, the, the inner circle, who had already signed up, if you like, to be with him. They they were already sold out. They were all in. They were the disciples of Jesus. But he's not speaking to them at this point. It says he, he turned to the crowds, and now he's speaking to everybody. Now, what does that mean? He's speaking to everybody. It means that there aren't two standards when it comes to discipleship. And almost everybody thinks that really there, there kind of is a double standard. And we don't like to talk about it out loud, but... But we imagine there's, there's kind of the, there's the regular level of being a Christian. Uh, there are regular Christians, and they believe, and, and maybe they're not fired up about it, but they come to church pretty often, and, and they know some of the stuff, and, and they pray when there's trouble in their life. They just, they're constant. That's the standard. But then there's that other group. You know the ones. They're, they're kind of the fanatical type. Uh, they're all in, and you all know it. Uh, and what Jesus is really saying as he turns to the crowds is there aren't two standards. There aren't two levels. There's just one. In, in effect, what, what he's probably trying to say is that anyone who wants to deal with me has to take up a cross. If you want to deal with me at all, you have to put this first ahead of parents, ahead of family, ahead of career, ahead of everything else. Full, complete, sacrificial discipleship is what it was about. There, there just weren't two standards. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, and you don't get to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not into all of that. There aren't double standards. And Jesus says, if there's one standard, there's one standard only, 
then I need you to know this about it. I'm not going to hide the cost. I'm not going to hide the challenges. To be a Christian, to be a disciple, is to put this first. And anyone who wants to come to me at all should come as a disciple, sort of full-throated, all-in discipleship. It's not optional. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? Something else that we can tease out of these words is that the discipleship that Jesus is getting at is unpredictable. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life, that life is unpredictable. Well, clearly we have over the past 17 months. But it's not just life that's unpredictable. God is unpredictable. And following God is unpredictable. Look for a second at the range that Jesus is dealing with in these words. What is the range of relationships? Father and mother, wife or husband, children, brothers, sisters. What is that? Well, in, in a family-oriented society, this is the basic trajectory of your life. Your life revolves around these relationships. And let's be honest here. Uh, it's a little bit different for us. It's, it's a little bit different for this generation. It's one of these places where you have to be careful. If you've been raised in a Western society, a secular society, an individualistic society, it's easy to misunderstand what's going on in verses like this. Really what Jesus is doing here, he's just laying out the path that life was meant to go in the ancient world. In a world that revolved entirely around family and around patriarchy, this was what life looked like. It revolved around your family, your extended family. And those of you who are from more traditional cultures, and I know some of you were born into traditional cultures, some of you were raised in traditional cultures, you know how vastly important family is to everything that happens in your life. And you know that, oh, you never disgrace your family. You never move too far away from your family. You never marry outside of that group that your family have approved of. And here's really, I think, what Jesus is doing. He's looking at the agenda for a person's normal expected life and saying, you have to be willing to put it aside or to put it at risk. Or let me put it a, a better way. You can't come to me with the agenda for your life already filled in and then just try and fit me in at the edges. Jesus is not going to be used that way. Jesus is not, contrary to the way that he is pictured so often in this society, is not a self-improvement tool. You don't come to Jesus just because you want to be a better husband or a better wife or have a happier family. You don't come to him just because you want to be blessed with material wealth and riches and provision. You come to Jesus for who he is. What stronger way to say that than as Jesus puts it, you must hate your father and mother, brother, sister, wife, child. Don't come to me just because you think I'm relevant or 
just because you think it's exciting. Don't come to me just because it's fulfilling. Don't come to me because you think I'll make you a better person. Don't go to Christianity just because you think it makes a better society. Come to me for me, for who I am. King of kings, Lord of lords, almighty God, present in almighty ways in the person of Jesus. Come to me for myself. And to be clear, he probably will be the most relevant thing, the most thrilling thing, the most fulfilling thing you ever experience in your life. And he will make you a better husband, a better wife. He'll give you a better family if you, if you place him at the heart of it. And he will make it a better society. But you don't come for those reasons. You come for who he is. You come to him because he's true and majestic and glorious. You come because he is the burning joy of life. He is the the strength of life. He is your true Lord, period. That makes sense? You don't come to Jesus thinking, well, this is the way it goes. Father and mother, you know, we look to them and then we move out and it's husband or wife and, and then we have kids and it's all about the kids and then extended family and, and somehow we try and fit Jesus in where there's space. Now, Jesus is not a tame lion. You know that saying, right? Famous saying, C.S. Lewis wrote that, that book, uh, or set of books for children, the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's one place where the little girl hears about Aslan, which is Lewis's depiction of, of Jesus, Aslan the lion. And, and she asks, oh, is he safe? And the answer, some of you know the answer, because I use this illustration a lot. The answer is safe. Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. And he's the king, after all. Really, I think what Jesus is digging for here is the idea that that you can't just have your life so outlined ahead of you that there is not room for the disruptive influence of Jesus. You don't make Jesus the means and, and make your life the end. You make your life the means. And Jesus is the end. So life with Jesus, the life of discipleship, an unpredictable thing. Here's something that, um, that also we ought to draw out of that little passage. That for Jesus, discipleship is something that's deeply emotional. Uh, and it's the emotion that's in that passage. It's such a, dump, a stumbling block for us, right? You take a look at a word like hate. I mean, why would he choose such a strong word, the word hate? Uh, people look at the passage and maybe they have a sense of what he's trying to get at. I don't think anybody seriously believes Jesus is telling us we ought to express furious rage and hatred for our family, be actively hostile to them. Remember, this is the same Jesus who said, you should love your enemies. Same Jesus hanging on the cross who looks at those around him and says, Father, forgive them for what they're doing. The same Jesus who says, hey, you're not even allowed to hate the wicked. So how in the world could he be making this about hating your family? Now, 
something else going on here. And for something else to understand what's going on, you have to sort of put yourself in the headspace of a Semitic person. Um, the, the Semitic races, the, um, the Arab races, the ancient Near Eastern races of the world. And, and for the Semitic races, and by the way, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, a Semitic language. The word hate, it can mean two things. It can mean to hate actively. And that's what we imagine. We use the word, I hate you, clenched fist, gritted teeth. But it can also mean, I hate comparatively, which means uh, I got nothing against you, but compared to you, you know, love you, hate you. I love you. I don't mean to point you out that way. The best example for this is actually found right in the Bible in, in Genesis in chapter 29. If you want to flip to that, you can have a look. Some of you know the story. It's a story of a man named Jacob. Jacob had two wives. Now listen, full stop. That's a problem, okay? Um, and we've dealt with that problem on other Sundays, and we'll deal with it again. I, I, I'm not trying to say that this, this is a good thing, but it was a thing, and it was certainly an Old Testament thing. But Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. And it says twice in Genesis 29 that Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Okay? And and immediately our minds go toward what was already a bad situation being a terrible situation. And the reason we do that is because we're not thinking like a Semitic person. When he says he hates Leah, does it mean he actively hated her? No. I mean, have a look if you want. In verse 30, explains that that he loved Rachel more, but it talks about how that doesn't mean that he hated Leah. Uh, What he's really saying is that compared to the love that he had for Rachel, the way that he esteemed or held Leah, it just was not at the same level. His love for Rachel was so great that his feelings for Leah paled in comparison. Does that make sense, how the word is being used? He didn't curse her. He wasn't unkind to her. He was perfectly affectionate, and the text talks about that. There's nothing in his attitude or his behavior that communicated hate. So keep that in mind. And now let's come back to Jesus and see if we can get a sense of where he's going with this. Because it's really kind of a a searching test. Look at all these different relationships, all these different ways of loving people. Father and mother. Uh, those are what the, the Greeks, New Testament written in Greek, so this isn't Semitic, this is Greek now. This is what the Greeks called storge love. This is family love. And when it's working well, it's a beautiful thing. right? I mean, family can be the best of who we are can also be the worst, but storge love, familiar love, affection. And then there's your husband or your wife, your spouse. That's storge, but it's something else too. It's also erotic love, uh, a beautiful expression of tenderness and intimacy within the marriage relationship. And then there's your child. That's a different kind of love again. Your love for your child is different than the love that you had for your parents. It's different than the love you have for your spouse. And then there's brothers and sisters, siblings, and those you know, within larger communities who we talk as, 
talk to them as brothers and sisters within the life of the church. Whenever we can't remember somebody's name, we say, good morning, brother. <laughs> How are you, sister? Uh, but, but underneath it is also this idea that we're family. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking every kind of love there is, friendship love, family love, sexual love, affection. He's taking all those loves and saying, what I want and what I offer is a kind of love that will make all of those things pale by comparison. It's not that they're nothing. It's not that you actively hate in any of those contexts, but by comparison, it's going to make them look diminished. I don't want sentiment, Jesus suggests. I I don't just want inspirational feelings at the end of a worship service. I want a love that's as real as the love that you have for your husband or your wife, for your son, your daughter, your mother, your father. I want it to be real and passionate and interactive and delightful and something that will make all those other relationships, as glorious as they are, pale by comparison. I want to be the Rachel of your life. What a searching test. What a searing test, really. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think Jesus is suggesting, that discipleship has nothing to do with the choices that we make or the behavior that we exhibit or the duty or the responsibility that we have. The whole idea of, of picking up your cross, it says something about, about duty. I mean, of course there's choices, and of course there's obligations, and of course there's obeying, and we do that sometimes despite how we feel in the moment. But that's not all there is to being a disciple. There's passion to it, or there ought to be passion to it. That's the reason, I think, for this really strange choice of words that Jesus has here. I mean, he could have said, I need to be more important in your life than your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter. He could have said it. And there, there are other places where the Bible says it exactly like that, talking about priorities, but really what he's saying and phrasing it this way is something just a little bit different. I want us to interact in love. I want you to have a sense of, of my embrace. I want delight. I offer and I want something that makes all the other good things in your life, as good as they are, pale in comparison. It's kind of like, you know, the stars. The stars are out all day but you can't see them because the sun is so bright. And here you have Jesus saying, I really want that. I want that for us. Not to put all the other lights in your life out, but to flood them with the kind of affection, the overwhelming sense of divine grace that makes them diminish in comparison. Here's how Paul puts it. Uh, if you want to flip in your, in your Bible, Romans 5. Verses 3 to 5. This is a beautiful verse. I mean, we could spend all day with this verse as well. But Romans 5, verses 3 to 5 says, We know that suffering produces perseverance and character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That he has given to us. A beautiful verse. Some of you in your schooling, maybe in university along the, along the way, 
encountered a book written by a fourth century African bishop named Augustine. He wrote the first book, or what's widely acknowledged as the first book of real biography, um, autobiography, just a searing inward glance about who he was and what was going on in his life. And in that book called Confessions, he says, you know, the essence, the essence to a transformed character, the key to a great life, the key to courage, the key to forgiveness, the key to peace is, and his readers are going, what? And tell us what? He says it's not willpower. It's not working hard. He says it's the right ordering of the loves in our life. Get your loves in the right order. The thing you need to go from being a coward to being courageous, to go from being bitter to being happy, to being peaceful or forgiving, the thing you need to go from feeling inferior to being confident is get your loves in the right order. So that the love of Jesus is so real that it eclipses all of those other things. You'd go on to say that the problem is not that you love anything too much. It's that you love Jesus too little in comparison to that thing that you love. The challenge of discipleship is not that we love those other people in our lives too much, father, mother, children, spouse. How could you love them too much? It's that you love God too little in comparison. God is not Rachel in our lives. The fairest among 10,000 is how she was described. Discipleship is meant to be this deeply emotional thing. And when you get the order of love right in your life, so many other good things fall out the way that they should. So I guess the question is, how do you get that? I mean, how do you arrive in that place? Do you just whip it up? Well, I mean, maybe you're better at that than I am. How are you just manufacturing loving feelings? And it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. In fact, for, for, for many of us, if we're honest, Jesus still feels really pretty abstract. And I guess we could just send you packing saying, just spend more time praying. But I'm not sure that that has a way of working itself out on its own. So I want to say one more thing, and then, then we'll wrap it up for today. That for Jesus, discipleship is something that is completely positional. And you say, okay, well, that settles it. That's really clear. No. <laughs> Let me tell you what I mean here. Uh, we're told by Jesus at the end of the passage that you're supposed to take up your cross. And we read that, and we think, uh-oh. Well, that sounds awful. That sounds like suffering. That sounds like misery. Why would I do that? Why would I choose that? Um, Jesus, you need to go and spend some time with your marketing department again because that's a terrible recruitment slogan. Take up your cross. Uh, he doesn't say, take up my teachings and follow me or take up my example and follow me. Take some good advice and follow me. I mean, those, those we could deal with, we think. 
But the truth is, any of those things, if we tried to deal with Jesus that way, would crush us. If you tried to just pick up Jesus' teaching, go pick up the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and follow him on that basis. You go one step, and it will crush you right out the door. Don't envy anyone. Forgive everyone. Be completely poor in spirit. Good luck with that. It will crush you. Now, Jesus says, take up the cross. And we look at it and say, that's, that's awful. Let me try and, and, and reset that language in a way that might change everything for you. The cross obviously is a reference to, to that earth-shattering, world-changing moment when Jesus gives up his life. That moment that changed everything. It changed everything for everyone who looks at that moment and says, I understand. And, and I know that it was for me that you did that. The essence of discipleship is to realize that when Jesus died, something in you died as well. When you take up the cross, you are taking up the identity of the crucified Lord. You are positioning yourself right there with him. Here's how Paul puts it. This is Colossians in chapter 3. He said, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died. The Bible says it over and over again. It's not meant to be good news. It's meant to be the best possible news. That everything that was holding you back is gone. And that now you take on this new identity because of what Jesus has done. And it's something that you, that you get to do and celebrate and practice every day. In Luke 9, Jesus says you should take up your cross daily. As a way of saying, every day when you get up, when you get out of bed, remind yourself who you are in Christ. I am in Christ. That's what we're talking about. You remind yourself that a part of you has died. And you remind yourself that, that therefore there's nothing left to prove. I'm accepted. I'm positioned now radically with Jesus. And you remind yourself of what Jesus did to get it done. Every day you take up the cross and you live in its shadow. And I guess what that means is that on the one hand, I am going to try and live a life of sacrifice and service the way that Jesus did. That's what we imagine when we hear that image of bearing the cross, sacrifice and service. But it also means that I am doing that positioned with Jesus and I'm living out of the fullness of knowing that what he did, he did for me. Discipleship is positional. And the, the abundance, the, the emotional wealth of being a disciple, the sense of fulfillment and security and purpose, it comes from knowing and accepting and identifying with Jesus even in his death. You position yourself there. That's what it means to take up the cross. It means to live a life positioned completely in Christ. I have nothing to prove. I know who I am in him. I know what he did. 
I know what's happened, and I'm living in the shadow of the cross. I think we should go there now. To the foot of the cross. Let's, let's pray together. Today, every one of us, if, if we were listening, has probably picked up at some point a bit of a, a, bit of a prompt, a nudge that's come from God. And I suppose, Lord, that, that there are people here who maybe feel like the whole thing, it sounds a little bit unreasonable. I mean, only a fanatic would pick up that kind of faith. And then, Lord, there may be people who are listening, wherever this message finds them, who are just feeling despondent. And they're really wrestling with who they are and with what it would mean to find their identity in Jesus. And they're just struggling under the weight of a a lot of burdens in life and maybe a lot of religious nonsense that's been inherited from their past. Maybe there are others who are here, God, who, who really aren't, aren't very moved at all because they find it difficult to understand the idea of an emotional relationship with you. That's the case. I pray that you would move in them and move through them. So for all of us, God, I pray that you, you would enlighten the confused, that you would convict the wayward, that you would help us all to understand the beauty and challenge and adventure of this terrific and great opportunity, the call to be a disciple. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.